Pushkin. Hey, Lost Hills listeners. I'm thrilled to tell you we're working on season two right now, and you'll be able to hear it in December. This time around, we're tackling an entirely new story about Malibu. It takes place in the swinging, sexy 70s. A picture-perfect family is shattered when the mother and son drown in a mysterious boating accident, and the father is convicted of killing them. Everyone in every hot tub in Malibu has a theory, but only one person knows what really happened. I can't wait to share all the incredible details with you in a few months. In the meantime, I want to tell you about a new podcast from Pushkin called Bad Women, Ripper Retold. You know the story. In 1888, five female prostitutes were brutally murdered in a London slum, attacks so violent the killer earned a nickname, Jack the Ripper. For centuries, we've assumed these women were indeed bad women. But what if everything we know about them is wrong? Historian Hallie Rubenhold has uncovered the true stories of the Ripper's victims. Polly, Annie, Elizabeth, Catherine, and Mary Jane all struggled against the misogyny that thrived in Victorian England until they found themselves in the path of one of the most vicious killers in history. Bad Women is rich in historical detail and suspenseful enough to satisfy any true crime fan. Listen to Bad Women wherever you get your podcasts. Police! It's the coldest of cold cases. A murder of the most brutal kind was committed in the neighborhood of Whitechapel in the early hours. But by whom and with what motive is at present a complete mystery. In the fall of 1888, woman after woman after woman was murdered in the dark back streets of poverty-stricken East London. This poor creature was taken into the yard and butchered. I nearly fainted away at what I saw. The killer struck and then disappeared, leaving the police baffled. All that was certain was the awful severity of the wounds he inflicted on the women. The poor woman's throat was cut and the inside of her body was lying beside her. She was quite ripped open. The murders were so violent that the killer earned a nickname known the world over. I'm down on whores and I shan't quit ripping them. Even today, his name ranks among the cruelest and most notorious of serial killers, Jack the Ripper. This podcast isn't about Jack the Ripper. At least, it's not about the Jack the Ripper you've heard of. I can pretty much guarantee that up until now, Everything you've been told about the Ripper, that original serial killer, that knife-wielding Victorian bogeyman, is wrong. But don't feel bad about that. I, too, was none the wiser when I started researching a book about the events in Whitechapel in 1888. My name is Hallie Rubenhold, and I'm a historian. More specifically, I'm a historian of prostitution in the 17 and 1800s. I'd enjoyed some success with a book on the sex trade in brothels of George in London. It got picked up and made into a TV series called Harlots. So I was casting around for a promising follow-up project. And who are the most infamous prostitutes in all of history? The victims of Jack the Ripper, of course. Can you tell me one fact that you know about Jack the Ripper? 
that he never got caught. Oh God. That he's rumoured to be a butcher or something? He was like quite good at killing people. And who did he kill? Prostitutes. He killed prostitutes? Before I began my research, no author had attempted to really build out the worlds of these women, to fully put their lives into context. Their last movements on the days they were killed had been painstakingly researched and rehearsed. But what about the other days and years of their lives? Who were they? And how did they cross paths with a killer? Hello, love. Here, you look like a sport. As I browsed the books and films out there, I noticed that wherever the Ripper's five victims were mentioned, they were usually characterised as society's waste. Here, don't fight over it, lad. As filthy, ruined, pitiful, drink-sodden whores. You don't fancy for of do you? I'm cutting the price tonight. Polly, Annie, Elizabeth, Kate and Mary Jane were so reduced, so simplified, that they were little more than cartoon characters. You can have it for nothing if you want to. I began excavating their lives from start to finish, and what I found out amazed me. So what is the original story? The cartoon version of a very real and very awful murder spree? Well, it goes something like this. It's August 1888, in the vile slums of London's East End. This is a bleak and squalid warren. Crisscrossing thoroughfares are smothered by thick, noxious fog, and the streets swarm with prostitutes, thieves, and drunks. Life here is an endless grind of illness, crime, and poverty. It's nighttime, and prostitute Polly Nichols is out soliciting. Come with me. She's been drinking, and she just needs one more client to pay for her bed that night. Just down here. A gentleman approaches. Make you off the ground. He's wearing a hat and a cape. A doctor, perhaps? Polly takes him to a quiet side street, which is where he attacks her. Over and over he stabs her, and he cuts her throat. Then he vanishes into the night. Over the coming months, four more prostitutes are murdered by the diabolical Whitechapel fiend. Annie Chapman is found with her throat cut, her uterus and part of her bladder excised. Elizabeth Stride and Kate Eddowes are murdered on the same night. The Ripper carves out and steals away Kate's left kidney and part of her womb. Finally, in November, he claims the life of pretty Mary Jane Kelly, the youngest of the victims, and he eviscerates her. What remains of Mary Jane is unrecognizable. The city is paralyzed by fear and the police are baffled. Suspects are pursued and then dropped. A taunting letter of confession is sent to the press the author revels in the crimes, promises more, and signs off as Jack the Ripper. The name sticks, and a terrible legend is born. So much has been written about Jack the Ripper and who he might have been. There are endless books about his crimes. I assumed that there would be an agreed narrative running through that catalogue, some undisputed hard evidence. Like an archaeologist, I dug and I dug, but instead of a sturdy bedrock of written records, I just met with more sand. Police and court records were lost or incomplete, 
the case records that did exist contained things that just didn't add up. And the rest of the story was filled in with reports taken from newspapers, which took certain liberties with the truth, to put it mildly. So the famous Jack the Ripper story that you just heard is built on nothing. It's propped up by hearsay and by the work of true crime enthusiasts and amateur sleuths who all think they'll crack the case. It's true that Jack was never caught, but fantastical theories about his identity have flourished. Perhaps he was a barber. Maybe he was an abortionist or a surgeon. Perhaps he wasn't Jack at all, but Jill. At one point, Queen Victoria was even implicated. I realize that for generations, we've been passing down pure myth, and someone needed to set the record straight. While I couldn't trust much of what had been written about their killer, I did manage to uncover a wealth of material about the women themselves. And they weren't at all what I was expecting. Each woman was, at one time, what Victorian society would have regarded as respectable. Almost all of them had been married. All but one of them were mothers. None of them came from London's notorious East End. Each woman's life was extraordinary and unique. They began life as the daughters and wives of carpenters, gentlemen's valets, coachmen and soldiers. They glimpsed Queen Victoria and were neighbours of Charles Dickens. They were talented, rebellious, brave and kind-hearted. Their individual journeys threw up all kinds of intriguing questions. But to me, there was also a larger mystery to be solved here. How did these mothers, wives and daughters end up as beggars, streetwalkers, addicts and eventually as murder victims? What was to blame for their fates? That's why this series is called Bad Women, The Ripper Retold. I strongly disagree that they were bad women. It wasn't their fault that they ended up poor and vulnerable in Whitechapel, or that they were targeted by a serial killer. And the more I learned about what really led to their deaths, the angrier I got. But more of that when we return. Whitechapel murders might have taken place more than 130 years ago, but how we think about them still matters. Getting this story wrong is hurting people, even today. I'll start recording. Grace, first of all, I want to say it's just so, I'm so pleased that I've got you. Thank you for inviting me. Oh, it's an ple- absolute pleasure. Oh, the t- someone's at the door. This is Grace. Oh, God. Hang on. Somebody's at the door. Do you want to go? Well, go get the door. Don't worry. She's a graduate and works for a charity. She loves dogs. She's also a sex worker. No, I think it's next door. Don't worry about it. Are you sure? Sorry, go on, carry on. We've been messaging each other on social media since she read The Five, my book about the murdered women. Another sex worker recommended the book and I was like, well, I don't know anything about Jack the Ripper. I remember learning about it when I was at school and it was always the old archaic, oh, these prostitutes were murdered. And that, that's all I knew. I didn't really know anything else. So I thought, well, I probably should know because I'm a sex worker. It was quite eye-opening, but also disheartening. 
As Grace worked her way through my research, she was struck by the lack of sympathy the dead women were shown. These women sort of deserved it. What did they expect to happen? You know, they were poor, they were prostitutes. Like, I'm still really shocked by these attitudes, and I just thought, well, no, nothing's changed. Nothing has changed. Up until today, the idea that Jack was killing disreputable women has made it easier for us to make light of his violence, and even to treat his murders as a source of entertainment, which, in turn, makes us more callous when women like Grace experience violence today. If you continue to dehumanise the woman, and you continue to put them down as the prostitute, it's almost seen as acceptable to do this. Because it's perfectly fine to kill a sex worker. Oh, who cares? You know, let's just glorify the murderer because, ah, oh, she's just a sex worker and it's all part of history. It, it isn't. These things persist. And you're basically victim-blaming us and saying it's our fault when actually it's the opposite way around. Men are violent in society, but they choose sex workers because we are the most vulnerable, we are the most visible, and people feel they can get away with it. So they do it. We've never really faced up to this part of the Jack the Ripper myth by being so uninterested in their lives, by failing even to double-check the details, we push the murdered women into the background and given the killer centre stage. Jack the Ripper has never left us. Jack the Ripper has seeped into our culture and we don't really seem to want to get rid of him. That's writer and historian Matthew Sweet. He also worries that we've sanitised these ghastly murders and cosied up to the killer. Jack himself is Jolly Jack. He's a kind of ghost that we've made sort of friends with. He's a party entertainer. He'll come on and he'll give us a bit of a thrill. Somehow it's fine for children to consume stories about him. He's a sort of bogeyman. And I think that this could only have happened because we have absolutely no idea who he was. And so into that vacuum spills our fears and our fantasies and our perverse pleasures too. But somehow it's all totally acceptable because it's a parlour game. Jack the Ripper has become the oddest of things, a socially acceptable serial killer. And the more you know about his victims, the more that seems really wrong. Hi. Jack the Ripper commemorative coins. Jack the Ripper teddy bear. Even though no one really knows what he looked like, you can buy Jack the Ripper Halloween costumes. And he's printed on all manner of merchandise too, from mugs to colouring books and T-shirts. How much is the T-shirt? Those are 14. Okay, right. It's all I can read quite big. If you haven't seen it, it really is the worst picture I show on the tour. Every now and again, somebody gets upset. Tourists still happily flock from all over the world to visit the sites of the murders. That's Mary Kelly. You can see she's got no face. The killer's I went undercover to join one guided tour and stand at the spots where each of the women bled to death. That is her right thigh bone. You can see sticking up to her It was as bad as I feared it would be. That black thing in between her feet is a liver. At the end of the tour... After more than an hour of gleefully describing the women's wounds, the guide even tried to sell me a book. It detailed his own theory of who the killer was and how he evaded detection. I politely declined. I currently have over 100 books about Jack the Ripper. Rebecca Frost is an expert on true crime literature, and specifically on how we talk and write about Jack the Ripper. In most of these books, people are upset that he was never caught. They are not upset that women were murdered. 
people want to know the killer. They want to understand the killer. They want to know what drove him to it. And people are really fascinated by the fact that he got away with it. Nobody's concerned about the women. That's the problem. In the great game of unmasking the murderer, the victims only add to what we know about Jack. They are bits of evidence that might flesh out his identity. It's that half an hour contact between them and the killer that makes them interesting. They're intertwined with this person who used them for his own devices and his own pleasure in his own way. They had no say in this whatsoever. And that is how you're known for the rest of eternity. With advances in forensic technology, interest has been rekindled in the women as handy sources of DNA to help identify Jack. I'll tell you about a bizarre and upsetting plan to dig up their corpses another time, but I quickly want to mythbust one of the sillier scientific stunts you might have seen. If you've watched any TV show about the Whitechapel murders, you're bound to have noticed people in white lab coats and latex gloves taking swab samples from a beautiful dark paisley shawl. This crops up in nearly every documentary. Scientists at King's College London are analyzing the material on the chance that the killer's DNA may have transferred to the shawl and survived. This time, it's a show called American Ripper, and Jeff Mudgett is having his DNA compared to samples from the shawl. Waiting for these results has been really nerve-wracking, because if the killer's DNA remained on the victim's shawl from the night of her murder, this is the evidence that could prove once and for all that my ancestor, H.H. Holmes, was Jack the Ripper. The shawl was supposedly found by a policeman near the body of one of the Ripper's last victims. The murder of Catherine, or Kate Eddowes, was particularly vicious, and the fabric is said to be covered in her blood. The police officer kept the shawl as a souvenir, and it's been handed down through the generations of his family. This could well be the only piece of physical evidence left that contains the DNA of both a victim and the nameless Ripper. It's said that scientific analysis has already pointed to a suspect, a Whitechapel barber, at long last solving the mystery. Where do I start? There's all sorts of issues with this. My friend Professor Turi King is a leading expert on genetics. She successfully identified human remains dating back centuries and centuries, and she's less than impressed with the shawl. Things to consider even just at the outset, I think, is the provenance of this shawl. Is it even anything to do with Catherine Eddowes or Jack the Ripper or any of those cases? I can't find any document saying Catherine was found with a shawl, particularly not one as fine and delicate as the one in question. Did the killer drop it? Unlikely. And the policeman said to have taken it wasn't even part of the unit investigating Catherine's death. The next thing to think about is contamination because this has been in the family for many, many generations. It's going to have been handled by numerous people. A family heirloom unfolded and taken out to show friends and relatives and curious journalists and excited TV producers over and over and over again isn't exactly a forensic scientist's dream find. And the DNA supposedly linking Catherine, the shawl, and the murderous barber it was reported that the sample contained a mutation shared by the suspect and passed down to his descendants that was unbelievably rare. So, case closed then. The barber did it and left traces of his mitochondrial DNA mutation 314.1c, an identifying mark 
almost as unique as a fingerprint. It's not. It's 315.1c, which is very, very, very common in the population. Something like over 90% in Europe. It's very, very common. The shawl is just one blind alley in this case. There are many others I'll share with you in this series. But I've told you about this one because I want you to start questioning what you've been told about Jack the Ripper and the qualifications of the people doing the telling. Jack the Ripper is one of these cases that does seem to bring out certain things in some people. I personally wouldn't have touched this with a barge pole. By the end of this series, I'll have shown you why I think the case will never be solved. The interesting part, the bit we can all learn from, is why these women died. They weren't killed because they'd engaged in any particular trade or activity. They were in harm's way simply because they were women and because they were poor. Jack the Ripper may have killed these women, but Victorian society was the accomplice. That's the new story I'm going to tell you. And it's the one that's made me a lot of enemies. The Ripper Retold will return shortly. It seems I've committed three unforgivable crimes. I've revealed that quite a lot of what we're told about Jack the Ripper is wrong. I've laid out why the case will never be solved. And finally, I've shown a light on the lives of the victims and asked why no one else has really bothered to do so before. That's made a lot of people very angry. She's ignored sources to present her own theories and, when questioned, has behaved in a very non-professional and arrogant way. Just my opinion, of course. Quasi-feminist claptrap taking those poor women's lives out of context. I think Rubenhold could benefit from growing a thicker skin, like the Whitechapel victims would have needed. The reason a lot of the Jack the Ripper story that gets served up is wrong is because of people like that. When it comes to the examination of most other historical events, from the American Revolution to the Great Depression, the people publishing the books and speaking at conferences tend to be qualified historians, economists, or archaeologists. Rightly or wrongly, most professional historians have avoided studying the Whitechapel murders, and given the abuse I've suffered, I can't exactly blame them. That means most of the books and articles have been written by amateurs, who are often obsessed with the blood and gore. They call themselves ripperologists. I do believe that if you call yourself a ripperologist, you probably should get a real job. This is Ginger Frost, a professor at Samford University in Alabama. That is not a job. Trying to figure out who Jack the Ripper is, number one, you're not going to do it. And number two, who cares? At this point, if we put a name on it, would it change it? Would it make any real difference? The important thing to think about is the position of women and the level of poverty in the East End and the difficulties of the police in the 19th century. Their forensics were terrible. Those are the kinds of things you can learn about this, not endlessly trying to chase some name to put on this guy. He's not that interesting. Believe me, Ginger. I've tried to make these very points in public. Quite simple. Have you got any suspects? I don't care. (laughs) (laughs) Was it a woman? I don't care. (laughs) Often when I give talks about the five women, I have ripperologists coming along to tell me I'm wrong. There is evidence of professional prostitution. Have you read my book? 
On the other hand, some ripperologists confine themselves to being nasty about me and my work in Facebook groups and on Twitter. Threads have appeared on online forums too, attacking me personally and tearing into my research. One of those threads is now over 200 pages long. And don't bother trying to amend the Wikipedia page on the murders. Any reference to my work gets deleted straight away. My personal favourite, though, is a podcast, Rippercast. It compared me to a Holocaust denier. When people have recourse to flawed methodologies, like those adopted by people who seek to deny the Holocaust, we are below the threshold for historical responsibility at that point. One prominent ripperologist, a retired policeman called Trevor Marriott, is particularly upset that in my work I don't describe every cut and slash of the actual murders. It paints a false picture of the Ripper mystery and the, the, the Ripper investigation. In fact, Trevor got very angry on Twitter just before International Women's Day. He was annoyed about what he saw as feminism creeping into his hobby. I have no flawed view of women, he tweeted, other than you need us men because vibrators can't cut the grass. It was a jokingly comical off-the-cuff remark, which, in my opinion, has got blown up beyond all proportion. The comment was made that in relation to a man and a woman, that normally in, in relationships it's the men that cut the grass. Trevor and many other ripperologists seem to see themselves as gatekeepers, the owners of the facts about Jack the Ripper. I trespassed on their territory and dared to talk about the women. And to add insult to injury, I didn't even ask their permission. I think the response she's received is fully justified. Perhaps if Hallie had have taken the time to speak to somebody like me or somebody else that is fairly knowledgeable about these crimes, it may well have given her a much wider perspective. Even if you do have the patience to engage with ripperology, it can be like banging your head against a brick wall. I think I changed my email and I also left Facebook. We decided to cut loose and that was it. Neil Sheldon's written about the women too, and his work has been a useful resource for me. He spent 28 years in the Ripperology community before leaving it. He remembers going to an exhibition about the murders and getting into an argument with another Ripperologist about how victims like Kate Eddowes were being represented. He said, I'm sorry, but I really cannot see how the victims have been ignored. There are several pages from Edo's inquest papers on display, including the list of Edo's possessions. Now, as far as I'm concerned, that suggests that what he believes is that Edo's life story can be summed up by the fact that she had a kidney removed and that she was mutilated. That, to me, sums up a lot of how ripperology people feel. Just unbelievable. I tell you all this not to get even with my critics but so that you know why the story of the Whitechapel murders has been so badly told up until now. The people telling it often don't know what they're doing. They aren't very good at historical research, and they often flunk when they try to involve science. Remember the shawl and the rare, not rare DNA? Very, very, very common. <laughs> and also, and it pains me to say it, I get the feeling that a lot of the people who are deeply interested in Jack the Ripper aren't all that keen on women. 
For me, the worst aspect was just the sort of casual misogyny of it all. The ranking of the victims. It's just the way they talked about them. Like Neil, Melanie Clegg also fled ripperology. And yes, you heard her right. She says some ripperologists rank the murder victims in order of their physical attractiveness. The reason I left ripperology was actually just someone made a really disgusting rape joke on Facebook, and that was, for me, the final straw. I presume that's why a lot of the story has never been told right, why the women and the vital part they play in this fascinating historical event have been misrepresented or forgotten. The only people telling the story wanted it that way. They didn't think the women were worth the effort. I mean, the public face is all the tours, the conference, the articles. They've all written books. They really underline the fact that it's an academic thing, that they could all be, you know, proper historians if any of them had gone to school. But the undercurrent is very prurient and oh, it's just awful. They do talk a lot about, oh, we, you know, maybe we should have more women in ripperology and stuff. But, it's, you know, most reasonable women just aren't going to stick around for that sort of thing. So that's the myth out of the way. And now we'll turn to the real job at hand. I'm going to introduce you to Polly, Annie, Elizabeth, Kate and Mary Jane. You'll learn how these five very different individuals navigated a world which was inherently hostile to women and the underclass. They weren't angels, but neither were they the labels that Victorian society and our own culture has hung on them. You'll meet a cast of historians, criminologists, crime writers and more who will help me reveal how laws around wages, health, divorce and addiction put these women, and in fact all women, at a huge disadvantage. I'll show you where things have changed and where things are still, frustratingly, the same. The stories of these women will blow your mind. And I promise you this, after hearing them, you will never see the case of Jack the Ripper in quite the same way again. You can start right away. Episode 2 is available to download now. Come with me back to Whitechapel on an August day in 1888 when Jack the Ripper's campaign of terror is about to begin. Bad Women the Ripper Retold is brought to you by Pushkin Industries and me, Hallie Rubenhold, and is based on my book, The Five. It was produced and co-written by Ryan Dilley and Alice Fines, with help from Pete Norton. Pascal Wise sound designed and mixed the show and composed all the original music. You also heard the voice talents of Saul Boyer, Melanie Guttridge, Gemma Saunders and Rufus Wright. The show also wouldn't have been possible without the work of Mia LaBelle, Jacob Weisberg, Jen Guerra, Heather Fain, Carly Migliori, Maggie Taylor, Nicole Morano and Daniela Lacan. With special thanks to my agents, Sarah Ballard and Ellie Karen. <laughs>